This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyze the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. Hi, I'm Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. So nature-based solutions have been gaining traction around the world and many people might be familiar with how natural ecosystems like forests on land help to take in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But under the sea, there are also habitats that could fulfill this function. Today, we hear from a seagrass expert, Dr. Siti Mariam, about the lush seagrass meadows which can be found in Singapore and why they are so important. Welcome to the show, Dr. Siti. Hi, Audrey. Hi, David. So Siti, maybe you can tell us a bit more about your work with seagrass. I actually started looking at seagrass environments when I was an undergraduate student at James Cook University in North Queensland, Australia. It was actually more of a hobby because I attended a marine botany class and much of that class was basically looking at very small planktonic algae which hurt my eyes. So when the lecture section started on seagrass, I was like, ah, this is much more palatable. So I actually told my lecturer that I was like, oh, I think there's seagrass in Singapore. And she's like, yeah, there's definitely seagrass in Singapore. So she was the one who got me started. She's like, can you collect some samples for me? And I did that. So I went through N Parks, contacted some people that I knew, and they said, oh, while you're at it, why don't you just like find out what species there are at places at Labrador and Chikjawa and, you know, give us your species inventory list. So I did that. And then I started a PhD at NUS uh, looking at seagrass ecology and specifically the resilience of seagrass to anthropogenic, meaning human-induced stressors. So we'll come back to the stresses that seagrass face sure. later. But I just wanted to follow up, you know, I mean, you said the seagrass meadows can be found in Chik Jawa, and I was mm-hmm. there recently, mm-hmm. but I often confuse them with seaweed and other kinds of algae. So how would you describe the difference in these habitats to someone like me? Sure. First, let me assure you that this is a very common mistake. Even seasoned marine biologists do make that mistake as well because what tends to happen is there are only so many growth forms you can have underwater and so everything kind of converges to the same shape. So seagrasses are different from algae because I like to think of seagrass as the whales of the plant world because what happened with seagrass is that Mm. they actually evolved on land and then they moved back into the sea because they decided they had enough of breathing air. Um, No, I'm kidding. (laughs) It's not actually like that, but you know, that's the gist of it. Yeah, so they are real plants. They have a root system. They have, uh, you know how you learned in primary school about the different systems in plants where they have the xylem and the phloem and how it brings food and water and it's mm. all separated. So seagrasses have that. Algae doesn't. Algae is much more primitive. It's not technically a plant. And I like to think of algae as just a bag of cells. Seagrasses are actually flowering plants. So they have these flowers and algae doesn't produce flowers. And the most obvious thing would actually be that seagrasses grow in soft sediment habitats, whereas algae needs some kind of hard substrate. So it Mm. could be a rock, it could be like a reef or whatever, but algae does not have the same root and rhizome system and therefore they cannot anchor in soft sediment habitats. So tell us a little bit more about how seagrass can be a nature-based solution to tackle climate change. Uh, For example, early studies have shown that seagrass meadows are up to 35 times better than rainforests storing carbon. So how can they be so effective? I mean, how, how does that sort of work? So the reason why seagrasses and actually marine habitats in general are so good at sequestering carbon is because 
one, they get sources of carbon from land-based sources. So from your rivers, from other marine animals that decompose and end up as organic matter. So one, is the source of carbon, and two, it's how they actually store the carbon. So if you compare a marine system with a land or terrestrial system, in the land-based system, when your, your leaf litter falls to the ground, it starts to decompose because there's a lot of oxygen in the air. Whereas in the marine environment, that doesn't happen because there's water above it. And so it decomposes at a much slower rate. So because it decomposes at a much slower rate, that carbon, that organic matter, is actually trapped much better and much faster in a marine environment compared to a terrestrial environment. So they're kind of like a peat swamp forest, right? So over time, organic matter like leaves and, as you say, remains of animals sort of build up over time in this sort of very sort of muddy, moist environment where it can't really decay very quickly. So it's like a layer after layer over many, many years it sort of builds up. So that's kind of where most of the carbon is, I guess. That is right. So seagrass meadows don't actually store a lot of carbon in the plant biomass itself. A lot of the carbon is actually stored in the sediments. In fact, there was a study at Chikjawa that showed that within the seagrass meadow, the carbon in the plant accounted for just something like 1% of the total carbon found in the seagrass meadow itself. So a lot of the carbon that is stored in seagrass meadows are actually stored in the sediments. But like you said, it's layer after layer. So there is a huge potential for accumulation. And mm. if you again compare it to forests or rainforests or, you know, dry land forests or terrestrial environments in general, a lot of that carbon biomass is actually stored in trees. So if you guys know about the RED programs, for example, the reduction of emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, a lot of that carbon that is accounted for when you get these carbon credits from these forests is actually in the tree itself. And there is only so much that the tree can grow, right? So like exponentially, it'll grow like from young to like a certain age and then the growth kind of slows down. Whereas in mangrove and actually in seagrass habitats and also salt marshes, what you get is this layer upon layer of sediment accumulating every year. And that really only depends on how much carbon is being put into the system. So the potential to store carbon over millennia is so much more than you would find in terrestrial systems. So other than being a great nature-based solution, seagrass meadows can play other important roles as well, such as nurseries for marine life or small fish, for example. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, seagrass play a very important role in the marine environment. So beyond carbon sequestration, they also fulfill um, many ecosystem services that are needed by other marine habitats, really. So we talked about nurseries for juvenile fish. That is very true because there are some fish that actually migrate from mangrove and coral reef habitats into seagrass habitats specifically to have their young. And these juvenile fish grow up and then they migrate back onto the mangrove or the coral reef. So these are just examples of how connected the marine system is. So actually, when people talk about how they want to conserve a coral reef habitat or a mangrove habitat, that's not really the right way to do it because you should actually be conserving all these marine habitats. Mm. They all kind of Mm. interplay with each other and they all have some kind of significance and importance and they all affect each other in some way. So seagrass meadows actually also support 
charismatic megafauna such as green turtles as well as dugongs. In fact, for dugongs, seagrasses are their only food source. So if you want to keep your dugongs around for much longer, you will have to also keep your seagrass meadows. In fact, we have actually found dugong feeding trails in seagrass meadows in Singapore at Chik Jawa as well as at Cyrene Reef. And this is my favourite. I think it was a couple of years back. They actually found out that seagrasses are good for human health. So mm. whenever people ask me about how useful seagrass is, you know, they're like, oh, but can it do anything for people? Because, you know, obviously we're very self-centered creatures. <laughs> you know, people always ask me this question and now I can say very affirmatively, yes, seagrass can affect the health of your marine waters and that prevents people from getting sick. So how they found this out was a bunch of researchers were doing research in Indonesia, I think, and they noticed that after working in a coral reef area that didn't have an adjacent seagrass meadow, I think a bunch of them got really sick. And when they tested the waters of the reef with the seagrass meadow adjacent and the reef with no seagrass meadow adjacent, they found that their number of pathogens where there was no seagrass was much higher and that mm. caused them to uh, fall ill. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or even on Spotify and like us and give us a rating. Now, back to our conversation with Dr. Siti Mariam, a marine ecologist at the environmental consultancy company DHI Water and Environment. So, Dr. Siti, we have talked about the importance of seagrass habitats in terms of its ability to store carbon, being a nursery, and also its positive effects on human health. But let us now come to the health of this environment itself. Can you share with us more about the threats that these habitats face worldwide? Because they're often overshadowed by their more charismatic marine cousins like your coral reefs and your mangroves, people don't really know what seagrass is and they don't know what a meadow does. So a lot of the times, there's a lot of anthropogenic threats to seagrass. So you find that seagrass grow in very sheltered, calm marine waters, which is also a great place to have harbours, such as Singapore. And what happens is that you get a lot of shipping activity and you get a lot of anchoring activity in seagrass meadows, which can lead to a lot of damage. Going back to the example of Singapore, I think something like 40% of our seagrass meadows have actually been lost through coastal development and land reclamation. And uh, what's remaining is actually just a small vestige of how great our seagrass meadows once were. In fact, like Changi Airport, as wonderful as it is, now sits on what used to be a massive seagrass meadow off the coast of Changi. And these seagrass meadows don't just exist, they actually support livelihoods. But the cool thing about the seagrass is that it started to recolonize these habitats that have once reclaimed it. So in patches like in Tanamera and in some parts of East Coast, actually, you find that seagrasses have recolonized the soft sediment habitats there. So like the cool thing about seagrasses is that they're super resilient and they refuse to give up. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. But you know, I mean, you have talked about the impacts on like livelihoods and also the marine life that live among seagrass. But what mm -hmm. about carbon? Let's say if a seagrass meadow is disturbed, it's dredged, or it's smothered with sediment, what happens to all the carbon that's stored there? Will it be re-emitted into the atmosphere? 
It will actually. So that is a huge issue when you are talking about losing your seagrass meadows. So what happens is the carbon that is being stored inside your seagrass, when your seagrass die off, it gets re-emitted into the marine environment and then into the atmosphere. So you're actually, by destroying a seagrass meadow or by not preserving a seagrass meadow in a healthy state, in a healthy and resilient state, you are actually reintroducing carbon into the ecosystem. So are there solutions also to help restore them, to keep these habitats thriving? Yes, there are. So the main threats to seagrass are actually from declining water quality and coastal development. So something to keep in mind when we are doing coastal development, we need to be sensitive to the needs of these marine habitats. So if we can do some seagrass restoration in addition to like the reclamation or something like that, that would actually really help them. But the other issue that seagrass is facing is actually declining water quality. And this comes from when people release, say, large amounts of sewage into the system, when there is agricultural runoff. So these things reduce the amount of light that is available for the seagrass. And eventually that leads to them not getting enough light to support their biomass and then they will start to dwindle and die. In terms of efforts, definitely there have been a lot of efforts to try to restore seagrass. And I think seagrass ecosystems actually unfairly have a reputation for being difficult to restore. And I would say that this is not true. What usually tends to happen is that people have an idea of where they would like to restore some seagrass, or actually Mm. this goes for mangrove habitats as well, but environmental conditions there might not be suitable. So for example, if you're going to try to restore seagrass where seagrass has been lost or where seagrass has greatly declined, you need to first understand why there was the decline in the first place. So could it be things like water quality? Could it be because there was too much sedimentation? Could it be that there was some kind of pollution event, for example, that caused the seagrass die-off to begin with? So those things need to be taken into consideration before you even attempt to do any kind of seagrass restoration. And that's usually where we fail. We don't choose the correct sites for seagrass restoration. In Singapore, the biggest hurdle to seagrass restoration would actually be where do we plant the seagrass? Because if you think about how our coastline has developed from soft sandy shores into seawalls, that is not the right habitat to plant seagrass. So in order to do some kind of seagrass restoration, you actually need to find an area with uh, soft sediment, uh, soft substrates that are ideal for seagrass to grow in. The other thing, of course, is that the turbidity in Singapore waters is renowned and uh, we actually get a lot of cloudiness or sedimentation in our waters and that doesn't help with seagrasses being able to get enough light. That said, a lot of the seagrass meadows in Singapore survive because they are in intertidal areas and these are much shallower areas and at some points in the day, they may actually be partially exposed. So that allows a lot more sunlight to penetrate and that allows the seagrass to survive. So there are a lot of these factors to think about. And I think the same goes for like other places in the region that have attempted seagrass restoration. So I know there were some examples in Indonesia where they have actually tried to 
restore seagrass meadows and they found that where they were successful, it's where there weren't a lot of environmental pressures on the seagrass itself. So the other thing they found that really worked, at least in the tropical sense, is that they transplant more than one species. So there are different seagrass species growing in most tropical meadows and the interactions between these species can actually perform a positive feedback loop. So when you actually restore seagrass species by transplanting more than one species of seagrass, they actually have a positive feedback mechanism that allows them to survive better. So that's possibly another solution to seagrass restoration as well. So the area of seagrass restoration is actually quite growing. Uh, A lot of new insights are coming in. So I think it's just a matter of having to try different methods or a combination of these methods that could work in our Singapore context and in the tropical context. So thank you, Siti, for speaking with us today and for sharing about, you know, the possible solutions that we could look at for seagrass restoration. It's always good to end off on a hopeful note. Indeed, Audrey, and thanks for inviting me on the show. And to all the viewers out there, I encourage you to go hug a seagrass today. (laughs) (laughs) For more stories on climate change and the environment, do check out The Straits Times. That's a wrap for Green Pulse, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.